Hey, I'm Mike Ryan Ruiz, and on this week's episode of Chelsea Miked Up, we'll talk to Chelsea FC chairman Bruce Buck. We'll talk about his journey from New York all the way to West London to become the chairman of the club he supported. We'll look back at Chelsea's triumphant victory over Nottingham Forest. They absolutely own Nottingham Forest. A nice little moment for Callum Hudson-Odoi. Got back on the score sheet. Maybe this is a sign of things to come. We'll look ahead to Chelsea's match against Burnley as they return to Premier League play. We'll hit the rumor mill. That's right. Transfer Twitter is back. The ban has been lifted. So let's be idiots. And remember, you can always tweet the show at Chelsea FC and USA using the hashtag Chelsea Miked Up. And for all you boomers out there, there's no apostrophe in the Miked Up. That's Chelsea M-I-K-E-D. Get it. It's play on words. Up. Chelsea Miked Up. Let's get into it. Sounds of the sir, sir. Man, I got styly, man, I got swag. I've been a blue shirt chasing a bag, long ball from the back. Down. Mike Ryan Ruiz here, joined as always by my trusty neutral observer, Chris Whittingham. And Chris Whittingham, I said in the intro, Chelsea absolutely own Nottingham Forest in these cup competitions. In fact, I think this is the main reason Nottingham Forest has stayed down in the champ so long. They're just <laughs> ducking Chelsea right now. We are just thrashing them at the bridge. 2-0 victory after 2-0 victory. And I feel like as long as the FA Cup is played and these two sides are in it, they will meet in the third round forevermore and Chelsea will take care of business in a routine manner. As long as there is breath in my lungs, Nottingham Forest, <laughs> we will beat you 2-0 at the bridge. And Callum Hudson-Odoi will get on the score sheet in some form or fashion. Let's start there. I think this is a real headline. Callum Hudson-Odoi gets on the score sheet early on in that match. Really early. It was quite easy for him to actually do that. And after that goal, you kind of thought, oh man, this is this could get ugly at the bridge. But Forrest did well. This is not a bad championship side mm-hmm. that Chelsea played. And there were a couple of scary moments there. Let's start with the performances of note. Callum Hudson-Odoi, hopefully that gives him the confidence. We're all certainly hoping for that. It was good to see him. He's never really lost a step in cup play. That hasn't been the deal with uh, Callum Hudson-Odoi. The struggles have been in the league, and hopefully this is a start of things to come because he's a young player, and we know how big a slump buster could possibly be for a young person starting their career out. But for me, Chris Whittingham, the main takeaway from this game was a performance of one Reese James. I totally agree. And I was actually, I went back and watched the game and I was keeping track of each cross that and there was four in the first half. There's a few more in the second half. And it was incredible. The accuracy and just the way that he takes those crosses and how different a dynamic they provide. I, for me, I'm looking towards Reese James and saying he can be the next great right back that's delivering great crosses and causing problems. We've seen that in the modern game. The fullback has grown in importance, and I think Reese James is this next player that's going to step up into Trent Alexander-Arnold, Kieran Trippier, Kyle Walker sort of role as English right backs that you saw it pinpoint accuracy for Michi Batshuayi. I think with a different center forward, uh, and maybe if Batshuayi is just sort of on a better day, uh, those could have very easily been goals. But just he takes them first time before any defender can close them down. The accuracy is incredible. The pace is incredible. This is a real threat going forward for Chelsea's 2020 year is Reese James coming down that right-hand side and providing crosses. He provides a service that Chelsea neutrals and emotionals can all agree that their (laughs) service has been lacking from that. And it really isn't, this isn't a story of a player struggling to make the starting 11. This is a story of a player that's been battling injury. He had a pretty big injury in preseason. That's obviously going to slow his development with the first team. 
And then once he gets back, he has a few nagging injuries that have kept him out of competitions. And it's good that we finally had a cup tie here so Frank can probably get some confidence going for some of these younger players. And before this match, you and I were having a conversation out in London about the type of player Reese James is. I know his height and weight isn't something that's super impressive when you compare it to some of the other sports, especially here in America. But at fullback, 5'9", 200 pounds is a bit of a load when you consider who he's going up for these 50-50 balls against. He is a physical player. He's quite dynamic. He is offensively gifted. He feels frisky sometimes. We haven't really seen that part of his game. I know Wigan fans certainly saw it when he was their player of the year. He'll go for goal a couple of times, but these crosses were absolutely as bang on as you could get, and that's something that Chelsea have desperately needed this year. Well, you mentioned that variety of skills. It's important to note those as well because I think the standout is the crossing, but you also saw in one moment of the game he was pressed by two Nottingham Forest players and did this little half Cruyff turn in a sort of dangerous area and worked his way out of him, played the easy next pass. There is a variety of skill sets here from Reese James. He's got some technical ability. You mentioned that physicality that is obviously very important from a defender, but I just sort of find the overall totality of his game to be so impressive for 20 years of age. You mentioned his experience in the championship. That's what game time and playing time can help with, is developing a variety of skills, especially in the championship, a very physical league. You can clearly see that Reese James benefited from it. It's funny listening back to some of these episodes of Chelsea Mic'd Up. Every week we sort of profile a, a new young star and you really have to get altitude on the entire situation and look yeah. at this as a collective because we've said it a few times here that this could very well be the start of a team that goes on a Liverpool type run they may be a couple of years away from that they may need some heartbreak on the way to that but players like Reese James Callum Hudson-Odoi and it's easy to forget Ruben Loftus-Cheek who is at times Chelsea's best player on the field last season is a very exciting time to be a Chelsea fan it's going to be hard to remind myself of that when the inevitable heartbreak that younger teams process you know what Maybe this team doesn't face that, and they're just an incredible group. It's the 90, you made the comparisons, uh, Mm -hmm. the class of 92 of Manchester United. I have to look back at their history. I don't recall it too much if they ever ran into some stumbling blocks. I imagine that they did, but this is a special, special group. Yeah, and you look at their respective ages. It's incredible how much experience that they already have, and what it will look like when these players are in their primes in five and six years from now. Because you look at Loftus-Cheek is the oldest among them at 23, Tamori is 22, Mount is 20, James is 20, and Hudson-Odoi is 19. Never mind, Christian Pulisic is 21. I mean, the whole damn, it's a U23 side. It's incredible how much youth there is in this team. And you're right, it will take them a second. I don't know how many seconds it will be, but it will take them a second to be at the level of competing for titles. But When this generation is fully blooded in and in their prime, it's going to be incredible what their potential is. If they're already in a top four place, progressing this domestic cup competition here against Nottingham Forest, they're going to have a chance to prove themselves on a very high stage. Perhaps I'm putting too much stock in that Callum Hudson-Odoi goal. I just know how well he played in these cup competitions last year, and I'm just maybe applying my own sensibilities that I think if he sees one go in the back of the net, it could really open up a lot for him in terms of confidence. Especially when you look at the manner in which the goal was scored. He receives the ball down the right-hand side. He runs at a defender. He cuts inside, puts real power on a strike towards the near post. That's what he does. That's his game. And so it's sort of an actualization of what he's been hoping to achieve. Look, as the emotional fan on this podcast, you've watched these games next to me, and I've certainly felt 
Callum Hudson-Odoi pressing in some of the moments, especially in the league when he's been given playing time. And it's been a struggle for him, obviously, to get onto the field. But some of these moments in which he's frustrating certain fans and even frustrating me at times watching the games, he's doing the things that Frank Lampard is very publicly saying in press conference. This team lacks the killer instinct. Callum Hudson-Odoi, when he goes out on the pitch, he is looking to end teams. It just hasn't worked out. And now that he found the goal against Nottingham Forest, hopefully it's the start of things to come. Chris, when we went out to London as the official Chelsea podcast, obviously we got incredible access from the club. You've heard here recently on the podcast interviews with Christian Pulisic and Jorginho, not a lot of Chelsea fans know that the Chelsea chairman is an American, Bruce Buck. He has a fascinating journey, which led him from fan to chairman. And we really enjoyed our time with him out there in London, England. We think this is a, a real treat for fans. We went and did this interview at the offices in Stamford Bridge. In just, an actual boardroom. In it was, an actual it was boardroom. It's been intimidating. Oh, he has a presence. <laughs> he has a presence about him. And when I introduced myself to Bruce Buck, I absolutely felt someone sizing me up. <laughs> and he could no doubt take me in a fight. No doubt. <laughs> I, I quickly sized him up and I was like, yeah, Mike, you'll lose. Bruce Buck, the chairman of Chelsea FC, we're really pleased to bring you this. This interview it's a the type of interview that you would really only hear on the official Chelsea podcast here it is Bruce Buck Chelsea FC chairman watch every minute of every match download the fifth stand the official Chelsea app this is a real special treat for listeners of Chelsea mic'd up we're now joined by club chairman Bruce Buck who you'll know immediately why this is cool for the American Chelsea supporter, because Bruce Buck, you are from Brooklyn. I'm not exactly from Brooklyn. I was born in Queens, but of course I have the Brooklyn accent, the New York accent. I grew up in New Jersey. Now, I don't tell too many people that. I try and keep that a secret. So I hope you two guys and uh, the nine people that listen to your podcast won't tell anyone else. Metrics are doing a little bit better than nine, but uh, we'll try to keep it uh, between us. You are, sir, you're living a dream. We've uh, certainly researched. I've heard you also speak on this when you were in Boston as a part of the final whistle on hate. This is an amazing job because you were a Chelsea supporter, season ticket holder since 1991, I believe. And now you find yourself as club chairman. For the listener, can you give a little bit of background on how this all came to be for you? Yeah, well, someone once described it as uh, lucky sperm. (laughs) Uh, But uh, basically, I'm a lawyer. And uh, for many years, I did uh, what lawyers normally do. And in 2003, uh, Mr. Roman Abramovich, who was a client of the firm I worked for, bought Chelsea Football Club. And uh, I didn't do the legal work, but uh, better yet, I took credit for it. (laughs) And I became uh, a director right away. And in February 2004, I became chairman. So it's been an interesting ride. In terms of how a football club is purchased, how how does that happen? And uh, because, I mean, I I, purchased uh, just like any other business is purchased. in this case, Mr. Abramovich had been at uh, the Champions League, I think, quarterfinal at uh, Old Trafford in the spring of 2003, and uh, he really enjoyed himself. And as one does, he came back and he spoke to his financial advisors and said, I think I might like to buy a football club in uh, England. And his advisors did what they did if they were buying, I don't know, a cement company. And they did an investigation and some background, and they came up with four clubs that 
might be appropriate. Uh, one was Chelsea, the other was Spurs. Uh, the third was Manchester United, but they pointed out the fans would not be too happy about it. And the other was uh, Aston Villa, which was for sale, but of course it wasn't in London. And uh, he met with Chelsea and uh, with his advisors, a deal was done in two or three days, July 1, 2003 probably changed English football forever. Let's discuss some of the ways that it changed English football forever. I imagine some of what we see now with Chelsea 15 years later was in the original plans, but when that takeover initially happened, what was the plan? What was the strategy on on what he wanted to do with it? Yeah, Mr. Abramovich uh, said three things to the board, that uh, he wanted to build success immediately, which meant significant investment in players then, and almost every year since. Uh, he said he wanted to build a dynasty a dynasty, for the long term, uh, and that meant uh, putting together one of the best academies and the best coaches, and uh, you're seeing that the fruition of that uh, this season. And the third was to, um, to do a lot for the community in the wider sense, uh, community service around the globe. And, uh, you know, all football clubs do it. I think we probably do a little more than most, but that was one of the things he wanted to do, so we do it. Backtracking just a little bit, specifically being put in place as chairman, that decision gets made how? How does a formal offer come about? How much did you have to take time and reflect on if this was something that you actually wanted to do? Well, about a nanosecond to decide whether (laughs) this was something I wanted to do. But at the time, I uh, worked for a big uh, New York law firm, Skadden Arps, and it wasn't the kind of thing that they normally wanted their partners to get involved in. So I did have to do a little bit of lobbying. But in terms of uh, the process, Mr. Abramovich asked me if I wanted to do that. And before the sentence was over, I said yes. (laughs) Um, I, I think a lot of our listeners wouldn't necessarily know. I think are familiar with the way that American sports organization works and general managers and coaches and owners. But how would you say, this might be too broad of a question, that a football club runs, what is your role in it? Well, I think my role is uh, several fold, and it's changed over the years because uh, over the 16 and a half years that I've been here, for two periods of time, uh, we didn't have a chief executive. And so I filled that role for an interim period. In the early years, I did a lot with respect to player transfers and uh, acquisitions. I don't do as much of that uh, these days. Uh, Now uh, I'm generally just trying to keep the business side and the football side working with with each other. And I'm also doing a lot um, on the external part of the club. You know, I'm the one that deals with UEFA fill a lot of roles at the Premier League, so I'm doing those kinds of things also. Well, certainly a busy time for that uh, around uh, the club, especially recently. You mentioned transfers. I know you're not necessarily dealing with that at the moment, but a lot of American listeners just sort of see a transfer reported, and they also don't know the details that go behind that. How does does this work? Uh, You know, we have a scouting department just like the New York Yankees has a scouting department, and... uh, They identify players of all different age groups that we start to follow. And, of course, uh, different from the way all sports was 20 years ago, there's no such thing as finding a needle in a haystack. I mean, every single player that's playing anywhere in any sport is known to most professional clubs in that sport. 
So, uh, you know, over time, it's a matter of uh, identifying who your targets are and convincing the target that it's best for them that they come to you. And that means convincing uh, the player, the family, the agent. And that's what takes the time. What was the sales pitch then, and what is it now? Then it was, uh, we are creating something special. Now it is, we have created something special. Also, uh, we view London as a big uh, selling point as it com- compared to lots of other cities in the UK. I, I won't mention <laughs> specifics. Uh, but I think London, you know, if you're Italian, if you're Brazilian, uh, coming to London is a real attraction. Yeah, well, it's a glamour club. It is uh, a destination club. And I want to talk to you a little bit about um, being that Chelsea is now a global brand. It wasn't necessarily so much before you guys came aboard. London and English football, the dynamics are such that you're either born into it or maybe you only have like a a club of a certain size. And if you want to become a Chelsea fan, you can't really expand the base here. So how do you speak to... like Which is different, I think, than in America. Oh, totally. If, uh, as I did, if I born was born in the New York, uh, New York area, I'm a Yankee or a Mets fan. Yeah. And if I move to San Francisco, I may still have a fondness for the Yankees, but I may start supporting the Giants. Yeah. Whereas here, it's cradle to grave, and it's even before cradle. It's who your father supported. Right. So there's no real way to expand the. Uh... But there is a way to get more people interested in football. Right. Which is why you're sort of focusing on some untapped markets, really. I, I think even Chelsea Mic'd Up is sort of a part of a broader strategy of sort of growing the Chelsea brand. Because while you're probably tapped here in the United Kingdom with some wiggle room, obviously, mm-hmm. you could always grow here. Places like uh, India and the United States now, it's sort of like uh, the old West. Like people are trying to sort of become America's club. Can you speak to that general overall strategy and growing the brand in the United States? I think it starts with the fact that just being Chelsea or from Chelsea has a world attraction, you know, Kings of the King's Road and all that. And I think everyone knows about, uh, you know, the hippies on the King's Road and it has a whole allure to it, which you don't get in lots of other places. And we build on that and the fact that we've been playing some great football and winning some very important trophies. But I think um, to just put a little bit in perspective, I would say 10, 12 years ago, when we were really getting into developing internationally, we looked at the U.S. and we looked at China as, in round terms, the two big areas. And um, we looked at China as, as an opportunity where they've got several billion people, but they don't have a lot of money. So you know, is that going to work out? And then we looked at America and we said, well, they've got a lot of money, but they're already, each man anyway, and a lot of women are already supporting, you know, sports teams in four different sports. So, you know, is that a good opportunity? And I think we were wrong on both scores that, you know, we, we found that um, Americans who we view as the biggest sports fans in the world do have room to add another sport to their repertoire. And the Chinese who we thought didn't have any money well over the last 10 years they've had you know they've made a lot of money so those where we didn't quite sure where we were going 12 years ago we now know that you know those areas are the center of the universe in terms of uh, expanding our our fan base uh, and by that I don't mean to be negative about other areas we have a great fan base in uh, you know in Indonesia 
and we have a great fan base in Malaysia. So there are lots of places where we can go, and I think it's a matter for our marketing people to figure out where we go and what we do when we get there. Some of them are in the room with us, and uh, they very much feel the responsibility they're, of that charge. They're crawling under the table now that we're looking at them. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, just sort of based off of your life experience, because you mentioned sort of Americans potentially having the bandwidth not only to find another team, but another team in another country. Even when I was growing up, I, I, I didn't really think that I'd ever really be this interested in sport from another country. It's happening over there. How can you have an, emo- an emotional attachment to it? How surprised are you, having grown up in the States and moved here, that now in America, a league from another country is so popular. Well, of course, I'm a lot older than you, and when <laughs> I was when I was in high school, I, I'm not sure I'd even heard the word soccer. Yeah, I mean, so uh, the world has come a long way. But keep in mind, the world has gotten so much smaller over the last, you know, internet years that it's just very easy to move things in one part of the world to other parts of the world. So that part doesn't su- uh, surprise me at all. Being that. Um you just said yourself, growing up, you didn't even hear the word soccer, so you're more than familiar. No, that's a slight no, lie, because no, I, I did know. know about Pele and, yeah. uh, no, and I the know New York being, Cosmos, but yeah, in round terms. You, you were speaking in uh, hyperbole, but you're very familiar with the growth of the game in the United States, and being a longtime American Chelsea supporter, it's got to be a real thrill to see an American like Christian sort of he dealt with the adversity in the earlier part of the year and i think the adversity and we can get into sort of the media coverage in a second but uh, to become a regular part of the starting 11 to perform the way that he has up until this point it's got to make just you incredibly proud to be an american <laughs> well a little bit <laughs> well i i know it sounds cheesy but even manchester united supporters yeah, I, or I, liverpool I, I think supporters I know have what a best interest because i think uh people involved in european football generally look down at the MLS, and at American soccer players. And uh, although we've had, uh, you know, a few here like uh, Dempsey and others, Christian looks like he could be a really, really big star for many years here. And I hope he is, and I expect that he will be, uh, all the way from uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania, to the King's Road. I know that uh, there's a group of people here that handle that at the club, but was there any part of you that maybe was shooting a text over when those negotiations were happening? Come on, get that actually, one done. Actually, um, <laughs> Christian uh, visited here, and uh, we have a relationship with uh, a charitable endeavor in New York called FC Harlem, which is a soccer club. And it just so happens that the head of FC Harlem, a guy named Irv Smalls, who, by the way, wears a Rose Bowl ring, he won the Rose Bowl with uh, Penn State, he comes from Hershey, Pennsylvania. So when I knew Christian and his father were coming here, I said, Irv, fly over, maybe you can do a little bonding here. And he did. And we had a wonderful day together, uh, you know, talking about the MLS and talking about Dortmund and talking about... uh, you know, things happening in America. So uh, I did get a a whole day with uh, Christian before we did the deal, and it was a lot of fun. The media coverage of Christian in the United States was, um, for some, funny, because you have general hot take artists in the United States who don't really weigh in on the game, saying as soon as he's left out of the starting 11, or not even a reserve, he should hand in a transfer request. And it, it really does give you pause and make you laugh at just the general media coverage. What sort of misconceptions, since you guys, because this is a club that's always been in the news, what sort of misconceptions are there about the inner workings of this club that are out there in the media that you just sort of 
laugh at because you yourself know the truth. Well, I guess when I wasn't behind the scenes at football, so before 16 years ago, I would read the sports pages and I would mostly believe them. Now I know when you read the sports pages that maybe there's about 2% that are correct. <laughs> uh, sometimes I don't even get the result of the match right. But um, on Monday morning, uh, invariably, there's something ridiculous in the paper uh, that we have to deal with. When you sort of look back on the years you've had here at Chelsea or when you're at a dinner party telling stories, like what, what are the most positive memories that come to mind about your time here at this club? Well, the, the single most positive memory was, uh, was uh, winning the Champions League in 2012 in Munich. And uh, now that we've drawn Munich in uh, the next round of the Champions League, uh, it should be a very interesting February, March. Can you tell us the story of that day from your point of view? Well, a couple of memories stick out. First of all, for the two or three days that we were there, since this was their community, we felt like we were there to make up the numbers. <laughs> and, you know, that the match was all over and, uh, you know, we could just get 11 Chelsea players on the pitch. Then at uh, halftime, behind the director's box, they had the trophy. And at halftime, they started putting the red ribbons on the trophy, wow. getting it ready for the end of the match. And that was a little depressing. And then um, then they scored. And uh, I think it was about the 80th minute or something like that. Uh, Drogba? No. Oh, yeah. That, that was, the Drogba scored. Uh, yeah, it was about 70th minute or so when they scored, yeah. wasn't it? And Drogba scored 88. 88th, yeah. Equalizer. And, um, uh, and then when it went into overtime, well, I was thinking the Germans never yeah. miss penalties. <laughs> and then after the match... Uh, I went into the dressing room, and uh, I was talking to Frank Lampard, and I said, Frank, I feel a little guilty here because when they scored that first goal, I, I just gave up. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, I don't think all of us are feeling very good, but luckily Didier didn't give up. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I said, and when we got the penalties, I just really gave up because Germans don't miss penalties. And he said, well, once again, Didier didn't give up because Didier yeah. did the last penalty. So it was a great day. Yeah, that's, in, that's incredible that they started putting the red ribbons on. In, in the United States, uh, there was an NBA Finals game where Ray Allen hit a huge shot in the sixth game of the NBA Finals. And before he hit that shot, they started roping off the sidelines. Yeah. And to sort of say, hey, say off the court, there's going to be a championship celebration. And after he hit that shot, he said, get those bleeping ropes well, off Well, we the sort court. of understood it, though, because this was not – a neutral yeah. venue. Yeah, certainly uh, understandable. I want to talk to you about some causes that are close to your heart. Obviously, with this position at this club, there are incredible resources uh, that you have at your disposal to really do some good. I was at the final whistle on hate, uh, which did a lot to contribute to the fight against anti-Semitism, and I know it's a cause that is close to your heart. Can you talk a little bit about um, specifically the event in Boston and just some of the club initiatives to do some real good in the community? Well, we put about 10 to 15 million pounds, so 20 to 25 million dollars into good causes every year, which is a lot. And if you think of any big multinational company, if they put 3% of their revenues into good causes, we'd solve cancer tomorrow afternoon. And all football clubs, to one, to one extent or another, do a lot of good things. Uh, we have in our charity 500 different projects we do in a year. The anti-Semitism, Say No to Anti-Semitism project, was really an idea of Mr. Abramovich. 
who, uh, I guess it was in 2017, saw a rise in anti-Semitism. We saw the things that were happening in France and, uh, and in Belgium and then subsequently in uh, Pittsburgh. And it was his idea to have a special project uh, focused on fighting anti-Semitism. And he is acquainted with uh, Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots. And we were thinking about uh, a way to bring the project we had been doing for a number of months to the U.S. And we had the idea of playing a charity game. And um, uh, Mr. Abramovich spoke to Mr. Kraft, and they decided to, to do it together. And it was a, a good event. We raised uh, over $4 million uh, for these purposes, and uh, we've put most of it to work. It was a good experience for our players. They visited the, the Holocaust Memorial in uh, Boston. We've taken two plane loads of fans to Auschwitz to do a tour there as a sort of an educational experience. We've taken some academy players uh, for that same experience. So we've done a lot in this area, but we do a lot in lots of other areas from school lunches to helping old people to, uh, like myself, all kinds of anti-discrimination activities. We've got a project uh, with the Imperial War Museum who is uh, doing uh, new Holocaust galleries. So there's a million things we're doing, and we're very proud of it. My question would be, why is it so important to the club, and really football clubs in particular? Because, I mean, any... I think it's cultural. It's historical that sports clubs do things for their communities, and we're just picking up on that. The reason why I ask is because, I mean, and you mentioned any if any corporation put 3% of their revenue to, you know, to work for the community, they could do a lot of good. And I do find it a positive thing that sports franchises feel the role in their community. What would you say is Chelsea's role in its community here in West London? Well, that's, that's a broad question, but I mm-hmm. think it's uh, you know, the same, the same uh, role that we have throughout our, where all our fans are, and that is to, to do things for the community, to help the community in ways that either the government or others are not. That's club chairman Bruce Buck. Can't thank you enough for taking the time out to join us here on Chelsea Mic'd Up. We hope you enjoyed yourself. It's really I remember, cool I don't come from New Jersey. <laughs> we will make sure to put that in the bio for the episode. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Right on. We certainly want to thank Bruce Buck for his time joining us here on Chelsea Mic'd Up. But now we get down to brass tacks, Chris Whittingham. We return to the PL, the Premier League. That means our fantasy chat is going to ramp up. i got to figure out who to captain. And perhaps there are some Chelsea fans out there captaining Christian Pulisic, hoping to recapture some of the magic that we saw out at Turf Moor which sounds like a level in a a Witcher game (laughs) or a far-off distant land in Game of Thrones. Turf Moor is an actual place. Turf Moor is definitely where one of the families in Game of Thrones lives, without question. Yeah, without a doubt. Turf Moor, where Christian Pulisic, America's favorite son, not only scored his first Chelsea goal, not only scoring a brace, but forcing the crowd in Austin, Texas for FanFest into absolute pandemonium as he scored a hat trick. One of, honestly, I know I'm American, and this may sound ridiculous to Chelsea fans abroad, but this is legitimately one of my favorite Chelsea moments ever. The Christian Pulisic hat trick at Burnley. 
Burnley since that match really have fallen off completely. They, I've been watching some of these Burnley games, Chris, and they've got nothing. Got absolutely nothing going forward. And there's actually a shots on target statistic. From the end of November, Burnley have only had 10 shots on target. And they've lost three in a row going into this match. We've seen these sorts of swoons from the Premier League sides that Chelsea have come up against this year. Bournemouth was on a terrible run of form. West Ham was in a terrible run of form. But they've actually found a trip to Stamford Bridge as something of a relief for them. And that's something that Chelsea cannot afford to become. They cannot become the, the, the club where you go there, you frustrate the opponent, and you sort of recover from your difficult time. I think Chelsea have to take advantage of a Burnley team right now that just has absolutely nothing. Damn it, Chris, you're giving me PTSD when you're mentioning the names <laughs> of Bournemouth and West Ham. This is a home fixture against Burnley. This is exactly the kind of match that Chelsea would lose. Thankfully, it's not the Burnley of a couple of years ago in which you know exactly what they're going to do, but I imagine the book is out on this Chelsea team. These lower half teams are going to make Chelsea beat them, and I fully expect that at Stamford Bridge. And hopefully with a week off and a week of training, Frank Lampard is putting in the tactics necessary to break down a team like Burnley, who would be stupid to go at Chelsea, honestly, considering recent results. And I think the two players we talked about in the opening segment, hudson Adoy and James, can provide the sort of dynamics that can help Chelsea break a team down. When the ball comes to Reese James on the right-hand side and he puts a first-time cross in, that can be the difference in beating Burnley and not beating Burnley. When Callum Hudson-Odoi receives the ball down the right-hand side or running at a left-back 1v1, he can create a chance that can be the difference in a game against Burnley. I think it's on everyone. I think we saw Christian Pulisic in the game away to Brighton shooting more from longer distances. We saw Ross Barkley doing the same in the game against Nottingham Forest. So I think those tactics are starting to be implemented even ahead of this match. And now comes a test. And really, this is going to be... What Chelsea's life is most weeks in the Premier League is coming up against defensive sides and figuring out ways to break them down. And I think this comes another test. Well, speaking of tests, here comes a real test. We're going to go through the transfer market right Mm. now. And I'm going to have to stop myself from buying everybody. (laughs) So (laughs) I I need you to do a very thorough, very neutral, very professional look-see at the transfer Twitter talk movement that's going on right now remember the ban has been lifted so Chelsea are in on all of this and we bring up Burnley as Chelsea's next opponent and one of the things that we don't have to look for in this match is Danny Drinkwater because Mm -hmm. he is no longer on loan to Burnley he's not really changing the color scheme though he's going to Aston Villa and many are sort of theorizing that this may be Danny Drinkwater's last opportunity to sort of reclaim this Premier League career because since signing with Chelsea I know he had an absolute wonder goal one time but the moments haven't been good and I understand that he's been dealing with some injuries so hopefully Danny Drinkwater can get back on track he's just not going to do it for Burnley now that he is a Villa player right and he was it was a six-month loan and or whatever half a season loan and so he was recalled back to Chelsea and Chelsea have since found a suit with Aston Villa a team that might actually be in for another Chelsea player they're really interested in bringing Olivier Giroud in for half a season they just lost their main center forward Wesley for the rest of the season with yeah. a torn and ACL I've seen, as Giroud's not the only forward they've been linked mm-hmm. to uh, Michi Batshuayi mm-hmm. has also been linked to them. And obviously, Michi Batshuayi, it felt like he was pressing a little bit against Nottingham Forest because that very much felt like, all right, Michi, let's see what you got as we try to figure out what we do with this sort of backup to Tammy role. 
Right, and I think that's a role that Chelsea might also even try and sign in. They've been linked with a few uh, center forwards as well, namely Timo Werner, the Red Bull Leipzig center forward. Be unlikely for him to come in this window because Leipzig are in the round of 16 of the Champions League. I believe they're top of the Bundesliga table as well. And so that's another one they've been linked with, but probably not going to happen in January. Um, the one that's really interesting to me is Nathan Ake. We've mentioned him plenty on the podcast, including ahead of our uh, preview of the Chelsea match. Well, I think the one that's uh, very... the Bournemouth match. Well, I think the one that's very interesting, Chris, is Jadon Sancho, but that appears that it's not going to happen at all in this window. Yeah, and that that's an expenditure that's just on another level. I mean, they're talking 100, 130 million pounds for him. And so to, to be able to pull that off in this window would be unlikely. And even in the summer, that's just an expenditure that's insane. And, and I've also, I mean, Dortmund as well, they're a Champions League club. They're, you know, fighting for the top of the Bundesliga. They're not going to sell him in January is what I've heard. And he shot at a, a whole sell and loan back Christian Pulisic special. Unlikely, it would appear. Um, but the so the Nathan Ake one is interesting because Chelsea have to do this now. They have to do this in January, or else they cannot activate his buyback clause of forty million pounds. Uh, I've also read courtesy of the Athletics, David Ornstein, that they have the right of first refusal on any agreement reached with another club. So even if I, I've read that Manchester City are interested, that even if Bournemouth and Manchester City come to an agreement, that Chelsea have the right to activate that clause first. So again, they have until the end of the month and. He sort of fits in with a movement towards youth. So Nathan Ake uh, is one that if there is, a, to me, a deal that is most likely to get over the line in terms of buying, Ake would probably be the one. Now, in terms of selling, we talked about Giroud. We talked about Batshuayi. Pedro is the other one. He's out of contract in summer. According to Goal, he's been linked with a move to Major League Soccer, either to New York City FC or... Let me guess. ...to our local club, Inter <laughs> Miami. I am so sick of Inter Miami transfer rumors. <laughs> it's, uh, Cavani has signed for Inter Miami like 12 times. Yep. That being said, if Pedro were to go on, and I'd hate to see him go because, as you know, Pedro's won every trophy that there is, it'd be a great acquisition for Inter-Miami in MLS. Pedro is exactly the kind of designated player that has dominated that league since they started toying with the idea of getting someone that might be a little bit longer in the tooth for the European game. They have definitely shown that they have more life in their legs in MLS, and Pedro, I think, would absolutely destroy in MLS. I was watching some of the content on the Fist Sand app, and they were actually talking about the transfer market, and in particular, they were talking about the backup striker role. Now, I don't watch a lot of Brazilian soccer. Mm. However, I did see the World Cup of club football, and I saw this player, Gabigol. Gabigol. He's got goal in his name. That sounds yeah. pretty good for a striker. Well, it's his nickname. Well, but yeah, it's all right. It works. It works, because anytime that he scores a goal, I could tweet out Gabigol. Now, for me, that is huge on the scale of <laughs> when we're evaluating this player. Just like Diego Costa. I wanted to be able to scream Diego, and that worked out. So... I'm one for one, small sample size such that it is. I know a lot of people in our audience, and look, I know this dude's name, and that's about it. I've seen him play once. What can you tell me about Gabigol? Yeah, he's really good in Brazil, but he made a, a big money move to Inter Milan and didn't really work out for him. And so they sent him back on loan to Brazil, and he only went and led Flamengo to Copa Libertadores. So he is a player who's done well at South America, but... Again, that's an entirely different level. It's an entirely different style of play than in Europe. I think why he's been linked in some respects to Chelsea is because ultimately it's, it's similar to the Harry Kane conundrum with Tottenham. How can you recruit a striker when you can't promise them that they're going to play, right? That they're going to score goals, which is ultimately the currency that they trade on. Gabigol encountered it with Icardi and with Inter Milan, and 
are you going to be able to convince him to come to Chelsea on loan or even permanently when he might be behind Tammy Abraham? I think you're looking for a certain class of striker in that backup mold, and Gabigol can potentially be that. I wanted to talk to you about this because Michi Batshuayi is one of these hot names in the transfer market, and look, a great world-class backup striker is really hard to come by for these upper echelon clubs, especially with international competition in the summer. These players want to impress their national teams. And Michi Batshuayi, I was looking at the landscape, he's on the higher end of backup strikers in European football right now. And if he's happy in this position and he wants to actually say at Chelsea Football Club, you could do a hell of a lot worse than Michi Batshuayi. I agree. And I I think that Really, the desire is usually from the player's end to want to go and play. I mean, we've seen Batshuayi during his time at Chelsea try any number of loan moves to figure out where that place might be. He went to Borussia Dortmund. He went to Crystal Palace. He's gone to places to try and figure out where can I play. And I think Giroud is feeling a similar pressure mm-hmm. ahead of the Euros to go and find a we, club. We where saw he this can with play. Chelsea. We saw this with Chelsea with Alvaro Morata, who yeah. was probably at his height the best backup attacker mm-hmm. there was when Real Madrid were winning their titles and he, he showed off in Italy too, too yeah, yeah he, he was absolutely great and then when it came to actually getting the starting time it didn't work out for him and now he's back in his comfort zone out there with another Chelsea guy Diego Casa and they're having to play that sort of game of keeping everybody happy out there often playing them both at the same time but Michi Batshuayi and I'm curious Frank has tried bringing Michi and Tammy on at the same time and he can experiment with that notion a little bit more, especially if maybe in this tran- maybe if it's not Michi, maybe it's someone that they target in this transfer window. But it'll be interesting to see, as Frank has proven, that he's not married to a system if he can find a way to keep two strikers happy simultaneously, because that is a real challenge. Right, and that's the challenge for any big Premier League club. I mean, you look at all of them top to bottom. Man United don't even have really one, much less two, in terms of out-and-out center forwards. They kind of play Martial or Rashford, but that's not really their natural position. Man City have tried it with Aguero and Jesus, but Jesus wants to play at some point. I mean, you look at uh, Spurs have sort of kept Fernando Llorente around for a while. Now that Harry Kane tore his hamstring, they really don't have an out now. Jesus is the absolute top end. Correct. Of of what you can do in terms of backup center forwards. Because ultimately, these guys live on... We talked to Tammy, and like it's, it's so funny to talk to a striker and you just hear like, Oh, I scored a goal in training. I, I, I scored a goal. Like they talk about life through the prism goals of scoring are goals. Their currency. And so if they're not getting them, and it's much harder to get them in 20 minutes than it is over 90. And so I want to start. And it's just so hard uh, to find that exact level of backup striker that's okay being in that role but is good enough to come on and make an impact when you need him to. It has to be hard. I would love to talk to Olivier. That's what Gunnar Solskjaer was in the 90s for Man United, yeah. I I would love to. Well, it's what Olivier Giroud is for the national team and to a degree outside of Europa where he absolutely boss and don't you forget it, and he's thankful every day (laughs) to the good Lord for that move to Chelsea. He even said as much, Arsenal. But it's it's really a testament to how professional he's been, and even he's being linked to other clubs because, hey, I got Euro. This is probably my last go if you're – Olivier Giroud this is my last go with the national team pretty much and I need to get informed for this competition we want to try something new here on Chelsea Miked Up we've been trying to engage with our audience with reviews which you could always leave when you subscribe to our pod page but it's mid-season and I know some pods out there do this but I want to do it too and look <laughs> I was going to take a swipe at it and you know what it's it's fodder look are we going to do the cliche mid-season award show you bet your bottom dollar <laughs> you wanted to say something other than i wanted to dollar. say <laughs> i wanted to say but i don't know if that's like official club lingo you bet your 
I wanted to do the midseason awards show because it's fun. And we get to give awards to players, and I try to not let my American bias seep into this, and that should be a fun juggling act. So, Chris, tell the audience what we're trying to do here on Chelsea Mic'd Up. Yeah, so we're going to give you a list of awards right now, which is an original concept. No one's ever done this before. This is revolutionizing podcasts and really sport. Audio, even. We want to give you our midseason award, so player of the midseason player of the half season mvp of half season the goal of half season or mid season the newcomer of 2019 i feel like all we like are these all gonna be first team well no the newcomer i mean right chelsea are fielding a team full of newcomers (laughs) out there basically everybody but conte and dave are just gonna be like in the running for this and then match of the mid season so the game that you most remember or the most iconic game i feel like that's an easy one uh, oh, but yeah. And then we've got some off-the-wall ideas as well. Uh, so things like uh, your favorite haircut of the year, the best use of social media, and things of that nature. You, so. say, you say match of the season's easy. I mm. think this one's hotly contested Ooh. because people could go for quality, just like insanity, like the IX match, yeah. the overall best performance, which was probably at Tottenham with everything on the line, or anytime you beat Arsenal in the way that they did. And these are all fairly recent, and I don't want to be prisoner of the moment, but these were all great matches and all have their own reasons why they could win this. Oh, I love a good list. I love list audio, Chris Whittingham, and mm. I love engaging with our audience. So how do people give us their nominees for these awards? So go to our social media, at Chelsea FC in USA. Now this podcast drops on a Thursday morning. At Chelsea FC in USA, we'll start putting some of these polls up at noon. So uh, noon Eastern time is when these polls start going up. You can vote, and then we'll give out the winners. Next week, you can also send your submissions to at Chelsea FC in USA. That's 1,200 for you European types, man. I spent a (laughs) week over there and... 1537, I'm just like doing math in my head. I I am so American when I travel, but I'm getting better. With more trips to the UK, hopefully, I will be the best. Get involved with us. Get engaged. Do what Chris Whittingham told you. Remember that hashtag. It could be a little tricky. Don't include the apostrophe. Chelsea Miked Up, M-I-K-E-D, Miked Up, and give us your nominees. We will give you the results on next week's episode of Chelsea Miked Up. Till then, we will hopefully be celebrating a a Burnley victory. This is the exact kind of opponent that Chelsea have been struggling with, so I am nervous as all get out. But we hope for the best, and we expect the best. And follow me on social media, at Michael Ryan Ruiz. Chris, I don't know if you've noticed this with the hashtag Chelsea chatter. Been on a bit of a heater Mm. when it comes to exact predictions. I always like to send out these videos before the match. And, like, lately, more often than not, I'm telling you exactly what's happening. I'm beginning to scare myself. Score predictions? Not just score predictions. I'm telling you, like, Tammy's getting on the score sheet. I'm tell- I'm making all sorts of, like, sometimes when I'm afraid to predict a loss, I'll say, kept a clean sheet. And I'll be close. I mean, I, yeah. I said kept a clean sheet in that Brighton game, and his performance was certainly worthy yeah. of a clean sheet. Got beat by an absolute worldie by a player that, don't make me say his name. Anyways, Dom, you love showing off. <laughs> As much as I love a list, you love showing off. So get engaged with us. Remember the hashtag. Interact with at Chelsea FC in USA and subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with your Chelsea-loving friends. We'll talk to you next week. I'm Mike Ryan Ruiz. That's my trusty neutral observer, Chris Winningham. Up the Chelsea.